0: Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman by Richard P. Feynman. Copyright 1985 by Richard P. Feynman and Ralph Leighton. This unabridged recording of Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman was published by arrangement with Ralph Leighton and was produced in 1997 by Blackstone Audiobooks, Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audiobooks. This book is read by Raymond Todd. This book is 346 pages long. Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, by Richard P. Feynman. The book is subtitled Adventures of a Curious Character. The following material appears on the book's back cover. One of the most famous science books of our time. The phenomenal national bestseller that buzzes with energy, anecdote, and life. It almost makes you want to become a physicist. Science Digest Richard Feynman, 1918-1988, winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics, thrived on outrageous adventures. Here he recounts in his inimitable voice his experience trading ideas on atomic physics with Einstein and Bohr and ideas on gambling with Nick the Greek, cracking the uncrackable safes guarding the most deeply held nuclear secrets, accompanying a ballet on his bongo drums, painting a naked female toreador, and much else of an eyebrow-raising nature. In short, here is Feynman's life in all its eccentric glory, a combustible mixture of high intelligence, unlimited curiosity, and raging chutzpah. A storyteller in the tradition of Mark Twain, he proves once again that it is possible to laugh out loud and scratch your head at the same time. New York Times Book Review Books like this are temptations, to give up reading and devote life to rereading. The book is a litmus paper. Anyone who can read it without laughing out loud is bad crazy. Los Angeles Times Book Review Preface The stories in this book were collected intermittently and informally during seven years of very enjoyable drumming with Richard Feynman. I have found each story by itself to be amusing, and the collection taken together to be amazing. That one person could have so many wonderfully crazy things happen to him in one life is sometimes hard to believe. That one person could invent so much innocent mischief in one life is surely an inspiration. Ralph Layton. Introduction I hope these won't be the only memoirs of Richard Feynman. Certainly the reminiscences here give a true picture of much of his character, his almost compulsive need to solve puzzles, his provocative mischievousness, his indignant impatience with pretension and hypocrisy, and his talent for one-upping anybody who tries to one-up him. This book is great reading, outrageous, shocking, still warm and very human. For all that, it only skirts the keystone of his life, science, We see it here and there as background material in one sketch or another, but never as the focus of his existence, which generations of his students and colleagues know it to be. Perhaps nothing else is possible. There may be no way to construct such a series of delightful stories about himself and his work, the challenge and frustration, the excitement that caps insight, the deep pleasure of scientific understanding that has been the wellspring of happiness in his life." I remember when I was his student how it was when you walked into one of his lectures. He would be standing in front of the hall, smiling at us all as we came in, his fingers tapping out a complicated rhythm on the black top of the demonstration bench that crossed the front of the lecture hall. As latecomers took their seats, he picked up the chalk and began spinning it rapidly through his fingers, in a manner of a professional gambler playing with a poker chip, still smiling happily as if it's some secret joke. And then, still smiling, He talked to us about physics, his diagrams and equations helping us to share his understanding. It was no secret that brought the smile and the sparkle in his eye. It was physics, the joy of physics. The joy was contagious. We are fortunate who caught that infection. Now here is your opportunity to be exposed to the joy of life in the style of Feynman. Albert R. Hibbs, Senior Member of the Technical Staff, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, California Institute. Of technology. Vitals. Some facts about my timing. I was born in 1918 in a small town called Far Rockaway, right on the outskirts of New York near the sea. I lived there until 1935 when I was 17. I went to MIT for four years, and then I went to Princeton in about 1939. During the time I was at Princeton, I started to work on the Manhattan Project, and I ultimately went to Los Alamos in April 1943 until something like October or November 1946 when I went to Cornell. I got married to Arlene in 1941, and she died of tuberculosis while I was at Los Alamos in 1946. I was at Cornell until about 1951. I visited Brazil in the summer of 1949 and spent half a year there in 1951 and then went to Caltech, where I've been ever since. I went to Japan at the end of 1951 for a couple of weeks, and then again a year or two later, just after I married my second wife, Mary Lou. I am now married to Gwyneth, who is English, and we have two children, Carl and Michelle. R.P.F. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Part 1. From Far Rockaway to MIT. He fixes radios by thinking. When I was about eleven or twelve, I set up a lab in my house. It consisted of an old wooden packing box that I put shelves in. I had a heater, and I'd put in fat and cook french fried potatoes all the time. I also had a storage battery and a lamp bank. To build the lamp bank, I went down to the five and ten and got some sockets you can screw down to a wooden base and connected them with pieces of bell wire. By making different combinations of switches, in series or parallel, I knew I could get different voltages. But what I hadn't realized was that a bulb's resistance depends on its temperature, so the results of my calculations weren't the same as the stuff that came out of the circuit. But it was all right, and when the bulbs were in series, all half-lit, they would glow. Very pretty. It was great. I had a fuse in the system, so if I shorted anything, the fuse would blow. Now, I had to have a fuse that was weaker than the fuse in the house, so I made my own fuses by taking tinfoil and wrapping it around an old burnt-out fuse. Across my fuse, I had a five-watt bulb, so when my fuse blew, the load from the trickle charger that was always charging the storage battery would light up the bulb. The bulb was on the switchboard behind a piece of brown candy paper. It looks red when a light's behind it. So if something went off, I'd look up to the switchboard, and there would be a big red spot where the fuse went. It was fun. I enjoyed radios. I started with a crystal set that I bought at the store, and I used to listen to it at night in bed while I was going to sleep through a pair of earphones. When my mother and father went out until late at night, they would come into my room and take my earphones off and worry about what was going into my head while I was asleep. About that time, I invented a burglar alarm, which was a very simple-minded thing. It was just a big battery and a bell connected with some wire. When the door to my room opened, It pushed the wire against the battery and closed the circuit, and the bell would go off. One night, my mother and father came home from a night out, and very, very quietly, so as not to disturb the child, opened the door to come into my room to take my earphones off. All of a sudden, this tremendous bell went off with a hell of a racket. Bong, 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 bong. I jumped out of bed yelling, It worked! It worked! I had a Ford coil, a spark coil from an automobile, and I had the spark terminals at the top of my switchboard. I would put a Raytheon RH tube, which had argon gas in it, across the terminals, and the spark would make a purple glow inside the vacuum. It was just great. One day, I was playing with the Ford coil, punching holes in the paper with the sparks, and the paper caught on fire. Soon I couldn't hold it anymore, because it was burning near my fingers, so I dropped it in a metal wastebasket which had a lot of newspapers in it. Newspapers burn fast, you know, and the flame looked pretty big inside the room. I shut the door so my mother, who was playing bridge with some friends in the living room, wouldn't find out there was a fire in my room, took a magazine that was lying nearby, and put it over the wastebasket to smother the fire. After the fire was out, I took the magazine off, but now the room began to fill up with smoke. The wastebasket was still too hot to handle. So I got a pair of pliers, carried it across the room, and held it out the window for the smoke to blow out. But because it was breezy outside, the wind lit the fire again, and now the magazine was out of reach. So I pulled the flaming wastebasket back in through the window to get the magazine, and I noticed there were curtains in the window. It was very dangerous. Well, I got the magazine, put the fire out again, and this time kept the magazine with me while I shook the glowing coals out of the wastepaper basket onto the street two or three floors below. Then I went out of my room, closed the door behind me, and said to my mother, I'm going out to play, and the smoke went out slowly through the windows. I also did some things with electric motors and built an amplifier for a photocell that I bought that could make a bell ring when I put my hand in front of the cell. I didn't get to do as much as I wanted to, because my mother kept putting me out all the time to play, but I was often in the house, fiddling with my lab. I bought radios at rummage sales. I didn't have any money, but it wasn't very expensive. They were old, broken-down radios, and I'd buy them and try to fix them. Usually, they were broken in some simple-minded way. Some obvious wire was hanging loose, or a coil was broken or partly unwound, so I could get some of them going. On one of these radios one night, I got WACO in Waco, Texas. It was tremendously exciting. On this same tube radio up in my lab, I was able to hear a station up in Schenectady called WGN. Now, all of us kids, my two cousins, my sister and the neighborhood kids, listened on the radio downstairs to a program called the Eno Crime Club. Eno, Efferfez and Salts. It was the thing. Well, I discovered that I could hear this program up in my lab on WGN one hour before it was broadcast in New York. So I'd discover what was going to happen, and then when we were all sitting around the radio downstairs listening to the Eno Crime Club, I'd say, You know, we haven't heard from so-and-so in a long time. I bet you he comes and saves the situation. Two seconds later, bup-bup, he comes. So they all got excited about this, and I predicted a couple of other things. Then they realized that there must be some trick to it, that I must know somehow. So I owned up to what it was, that I could hear it upstairs the hour before. You know what the result was, naturally. Now they couldn't wait for the regular hour. They all had to sit upstairs in my lab with this creaky little radio for half an hour, listening to the Eno Crime Club from Schenectady. We lived at that time in a big house. It was left by my grandfather to his children, and they didn't have much money aside from the house. It was a very large wooden house, and I would run wires all around the outside, and had plugs in all the rooms so I could always listen to my radios, which were upstairs in my lab. I also had a loudspeaker, not the whole speaker, but the part without the big horn on it. One day, when I had my earphones on, I connected them to the loudspeaker, and I discovered something. I put my finger in the speaker, and I could hear it in the earphones. I scratched the speaker, and I'd hear it in the earphones. So I discovered that the speaker could act like a microphone, and you didn't even need any batteries. At school, we were talking about Alexander Graham Bell, so I gave a demonstration of the speaker and the earphones. I didn't know it at the time, but I think it was the type of telephone he originally used. So now I had a microphone, and I could broadcast from upstairs to downstairs and from downstairs to upstairs using the amplifiers of my rummage sale radios. At that time, my sister Joan, who was nine years younger than I was, must have been about two or three, and there was a guy on the radio called Uncle Don that she liked to listen to. He'd sing little songs about good children and so on, and he'd read cards sent in by parents telling that Mary so-and-so is having a birthday this Saturday at 25 Flatbush Avenue. One day, my cousin Francis and I sat Joan down and said that there was a special program she should listen to. Then we ran upstairs, and we started to broadcast. "'This is Uncle Don,' We know a very nice little girl named Joan who lives on New Broadway. She's got a birthday coming. Not today, but such and such. She's a cute girl. We sang a little song, and then we made music. Didlee loo doot did doodle doo. We went through the whole deal, and then we came downstairs. How was it? Did you like the program? It was good, she said. But why did you make the music with your mouth? One day I got a telephone call. "'Mister, are you Richard Feynman?' "'Yes. "'This is a hotel. "'We have a radio that doesn't work "'and would like it repaired. "'We understand you might be able to do something about it.' "'But I'm only a little boy,' I said. "'I don't know how—' "'Yes, we know that, "'but we'd like you to come over anyway. "'It was a hotel that my aunt was running, "'but I didn't know that. "'I went over there with—' "'They still tell the story— "'a big screwdriver in my back pocket.' Well, I was small, so any screwdriver looked big in my back pocket. I went up to the radio and tried to fix it. I didn't know anything about it, but there was also a handyman at the hotel, and either he noticed or I noticed a loose knob on the rheostat to turn up the volume so that it wasn't turning the shaft. He went off and filed something and fixed it up so it worked. The next radio I tried to fix didn't work at all. That was easy. It wasn't plugged in right. As the repair jobs got more and more complicated, I got better and better and more elaborate. I bought myself a milliammeter in New York and converted it into a voltmeter that had different scales on it by using the right lengths, which I calculated, of very fine copper wire. It wasn't very accurate, but it was good enough to tell whether things were in the right ballpark at different connections in those radio sets. The main reason people hired me was the Depression. They didn't have any money to fix their radios, and they'd hear about this kid who would do it for less so I'd climb on roofs to fix antennas and all kinds of stuff. I got a series of lessons of ever-increasing difficulty. Ultimately, I got some job like converting a DC set into an AC set, and it was very hard to keep the hum from going through the system, and I didn't build it quite right. I shouldn't have bitten that one off, but I didn't know. One job was really sensational. I was working at the time for a printer, and a man who knew that printer knew I was trying to get jobs fixing radios so we send a fellow around to the print shop to pick me up. The guy is obviously poor. His car is a complete wreck, and we go to his house, which is in a cheap part of town. On the way, I say, What's the trouble with the radio? He says, When I turn it on, it makes a noise, and after a while the noise stops and everything's all right, but I don't like the noise at the beginning. I think to myself, What the hell? If he hasn't got any money, you'd think he could stand a little noise for a while. And all the time, on the way to his house, he's saying things like, Do you know anything about radios? How do you know about radios? You're just a little boy. He's putting me down the whole way, and I'm thinking, So what's the matter with him? So it makes a little noise. But when we got there, I went over to the radio and turned it on. Little noise? My God! No wonder the poor guy couldn't stand it. The thing began to roar and wobble. Wah, bah, 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 a tremendous amount of noise. Then it quieted down and played correctly. So I started to think, how can that happen? I started walking back and forth, thinking, and I realized that one way it can happen is that the tubes are heating up in the wrong order. That is, the amplifier's all hot, the tubes are ready to go, and there's nothing feeding in, or there's some back circuit feeding in, or something wrong in the beginning part, the RF part and therefore it's making a lot of noise, picking up something. And when the RF circuit's finally going and the grid voltages are adjusted, everything's all right. So the guy says, What are you doing? You come to fix the radio, but you're only walking back and forth. I say, I'm thinking. Then I said to myself, All right, take the tubes out and reverse the order completely in the set. Many radio sets in those days used the same tubes in different places. Two twelves, I think they were or two twelve A's. So I changed the tubes around, stepped to the front of the radio, turned the thing on, and it's as quiet as a lamb. It waits until it heats up and then plays perfectly. No noise. When a person has been negative to you, and then you do something like that, they're usually a hundred percent the other way, kind of to compensate. He got me other jobs and kept telling everybody what a tremendous genius I was, saying, he fixes radios by thinking. The whole idea of thinking to fix a radio, a little boy stops and thinks and figures out how to do it. He never thought that was possible. Radio circuits were much easier to understand in those days because everything was out in the open. After you took the set apart, it was a big problem to find the right screws. You could see this was a resistor, that's a condenser, here's a this, there's a that. They were all labeled. And if wax had been dripping from the condenser, it was too hot and you could tell that the condenser was burned out. If there was charcoal on one of the resistors, you knew where the trouble was. Or, if you couldn't tell what was the matter by looking at it, you'd test it with your voltmeter and see whether voltage was coming through. The sets were simple. The circuits were not complicated. The voltage on the grids was always about 1.5 or 2 volts, and the voltages on the plates were 100 or 200 DC. So it wasn't hard for me to fix a radio by understanding what was going on inside noticing that something wasn't working right, and fixing it. Sometimes it took quite a while. I remember one particular time when it took the whole afternoon to find a burned-out resistor that was not apparent. That particular time, it happened to be a friend of my mother, so I had time. There was nobody on my back saying, "'What are you doing?' Instead, they were saying, "'Would you like a little milk or some cake?' I finally fixed it because I had and still have persistence." Once I get on a puzzle, I can't get off. If my mother's friend had said, Never mind, it's too much work, I'd have blown my top, because I want to beat this damn thing, as long as I've gone this far. I can't just leave it after I've found out so much about it. I have to keep going to find out, ultimately, what is the matter with it in the end. That's a puzzle drive. It's what accounts for my wanting to decipher Mayan hieroglyphics, for trying to open safes. I remember in high school... During first period, a guy would come to me with a puzzle in geometry or something which had been assigned in his advanced math class. I wouldn't stop until I figured the damn thing out. It would take me fifteen or twenty minutes. But during the day, other guys would come to me with the same problem. I'd do it for them in a flash. So for one guy to do it took me twenty minutes, while there were five guys who thought I was a super genius. So I got a fancy reputation. During high school, every puzzle that was known to man must have come to me. Every damn crazy conundrum that people had invented, I knew. So when I got to MIT, there was a dance, and one of the seniors had his girlfriend there, and she knew a lot of puzzles, and he was telling her I was pretty good at them. So during the dance, she came over to me and said, "'Say you're a smart guy. "'So here's one for you. "'A man has eight cords of wood to chop.' And I said, "'He starts by chopping every other one in three parts, "'because I had heard that one.' Then she'd go away and come back with another one, and I'd always know it. This went on for quite a while, and finally, near the end of the dance, she came over, looking as if she was going to get me for sure this time, and she said, A mother and daughter are traveling to Europe. The daughter got the bubonic plague. She collapsed. That was hardly enough clues to get the answer to that one. It was the long story about how a mother and a daughter stop at a hotel and stay in separate rooms, and the next day the mother goes to the daughter's room, and there's nobody there, or somebody else is there, and she says, "Where's my daughter?" And the hotel keeper says, "What daughter?" And the register's got only the mother's name, and so on and so on, and there's a big mystery as to what happened. The answer is, the daughter got bubonic plague, and the hotel, not wanting to have to close up, spirits the daughter away, cleans up the room, and erases all evidence of her having been there. It was a long tale. But I had heard it, so when the girl started out with, "'A mother and daughter are traveling to Europe,' I knew one thing that started that way, so I took a flying guess and got it. We had a thing at high school called the algebra team, which consisted of five kids, and we would travel to different schools as a team and have competitions. We would sit in one row of seats, and the other team would sit in another row. A teacher who was running the contest would take out an envelope, and on the envelope it says, forty-five seconds,' She opens it up, writes the problem on the blackboard, and says, Go. So you really have more than 45 seconds, because while she's writing, you can think. Now the game was this. You have a piece of paper, and on it you can write anything. You can do anything. The only thing that counted was the answer. If the answer was six books, you'd have to write six and put a big circle around it. If what was in the circle was right, you won. If it wasn't, you lost. One thing was for sure. It was practically impossible to do the problem in any conventional, straightforward way, like putting A as the number of red books, B as the number of blue books, grind, 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 until you get six books. That would take you fifty seconds, because the people who set the timings on these problems had made them all a trifle short. So you had to think, is there a way to see it? Sometimes you could see it in a flash, and sometimes you'd have to invent another way to do it, and then do the algebra as fast as you could. It was wonderful practice, and I got better and better, and I eventually got to be the head of the team. So I learned to do algebra very quickly, and it came in handy in college. When we had a problem in calculus, I was very quick to see where it was going and to do the algebra fast. Another thing I did in high school was to invent problems and theorems. I mean, if I were doing any mathematical thing at all, I would find some practical example for which it would be useful. I invented a set of right triangle problems, but instead of giving the lengths of two of the sides to find the third, I gave the difference of the two sides. A typical example was, there's a flagpole, and there's a rope that comes down from the top. When you hold the rope straight down, it's three feet longer than the pole, and when you pull the rope out tight, it's five feet from the base of the pole. How high is the pole? I developed some equations for solving problems like that, and as a result... I noticed some connection, perhaps it was sine squared plus cosine squared equals one, that reminded me of trigonometry. Now, a few years earlier, perhaps when I was eleven or twelve, I had read a book on trigonometry that I had checked out from the library, but the book was by now long gone. I remembered only that trigonometry had something to do with relations between sines and cosines, so I began to work out all the relations by drawing triangles, and each one I proved by myself. I also calculated the sine, cosine, and tangent of every five degrees, starting with the sine of five degrees as given by addition and half-angle formulas that I had worked out. A few years later, when we studied trigonometry in school, I still had my notes, and I saw that my demonstrations were often different from those in the book. Sometimes, for a thing where I didn't notice a simple way to do it, I went all over the place till I got it. Other times, my way was most clever the standard demonstration in the book was much more complicated. So sometimes I had them beat, and sometimes it was the other way around. While I was doing all this trigonometry, I didn't like the symbols for sine, cosine, tangent, and so on. To me, sine f looked like s times i times n times f, so I invented another symbol, like a square root sign that was a sigma with a long arm sticking out of it, and I put the f underneath. For the tangent, it was a tau with the top of the tau extended. And for the cosine, I made a kind of gamma, but it looked a little bit like the square root sign. Now, the inverse sign was the same sigma, but left to right, reflected, so that it started with a horizontal line with the value underneath, and then the sigma. That was the inverse sign, not sine to the negative 1, f. That was crazy. They had that in books. To me, sine to the negative 1, meant one over sine, the reciprocal, so my symbols were better. I didn't like F, parentheses, X, close parentheses. That looked to me like F times X. I also didn't like DY over DX. You have a tendency to cancel the Ds. So I made a different sign, something like an ampersand sign. For logarithms, it was a big L extended to the right, with the thing you take the log of inside, and so on. I thought my symbols were just as good, if not better, than the regular symbols. It doesn't make any difference what symbols you use, but I discovered later that it does make a difference. Once, when I was explaining something to another kid in high school, without thinking, I started to make these symbols, and he said, What the hell are those? I realized then, if I'm going to talk to anybody else, I'll have to use the standard symbols. So I eventually gave up my own symbols. I had also invented a set of symbols for the typewriter, like Fortran has to do, so I could type equations. I also fixed typewriters with paper clips and rubber bands. The rubber bands didn't break down like they do here in Los Angeles. But I wasn't a professional repairman. I just fixed them so they would work. But the whole problem of discovering what was the matter and figuring out what you have to do to fix it, that was interesting to me, like a puzzle. String beans. I must have been seventeen or eighteen when I worked one summer in a hotel run by my aunt. I don't know how much I got—twenty-two dollars a month, I think—and I alternated eleven hours one day and thirteen the next as a desk clerk or as a busboy in the restaurant. And during the afternoon, when you were desk clerk, you had to bring milk up to Mrs. D, an invalid woman who never gave us a tip. That's the way the world was. You worked long hours and got nothing for it, every day. This was a resort hotel, by the beach, on the outskirts of New York City. The husbands would go to work in the city and leave the wives behind to play cards, so you would always have to get the bridge tables out. Then at night, the guys would play poker, so you'd get the tables ready for them, clean out the ashtrays, and so on. I was always up until late at night, like two o'clock, so it really was thirteen and eleven hours a day. There were certain things I didn't like, such as tipping. I thought we should be paid more and not have to have any tips. But when I proposed that to the boss, I got nothing but laughter. She told everybody, Richard doesn't want his tips. (laughs) He doesn't want his tips. (laughs) The world is full of this kind of dumb smart aleck who doesn't understand anything. Anyway, at one stage, there was a group of men who, when they'd come back from working in the city, would right away want ice for their drinks. Now, the other guy working with me had really been a desk clerk. He was older than I was and a lot more professional. One time he said to me, Listen, we're always bringing ice up to that guy Unger, and he never gives us a tip, not even ten cents. Next time, when they ask for ice, just don't do a damn thing. Then they'll call you back, and when they call you back, you say, Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. We're all forgetful sometimes. So I did it and Unger gave me fifteen cents. But now, when I think back on it, I realize that the other desk clerk, the professional, had really known what to do. Tell the other guy to take the risk of getting into trouble. He put me to the job of training this fellow to give tips. He never said anything. He made me do it. I had to clean up tables in the dining room as a busboy. You pile all this stuff from the tables onto a tray at the side, and when it gets high enough, you carry it into the kitchen. So you get a new tray, right? You should do it in two steps. Take the old tray away and put in a new one. But I thought, I'm going to do it in one step. So I tried to slide the new tray under and pull the old tray out at the same time. And it slipped. Bang! All the stuff went on the floor. And then naturally the question was, what were you doing? How did it fall? Well, how could I explain that I was trying to invent a new way to handle trays? Among the desserts, there was some kind of coffee cake that came out very pretty on a doily, on a little plate. But if you would go in the back, you'd see a man called the Pantry Man. His problem was to get the stuff ready for desserts. Now, this man must have been a miner or something, heavy-built, with very stubby, rounded, thick fingers. He'd take this stack of doilies, which are manufactured by some sort of stamping process, all stuck together, and he'd take these stubby fingers and try to separate the doilies to put them on the plates. I always heard him say, Damn these doilies, while he was doing this. And I remember thinking, what a contrast. The person sitting at the table gets this nice cake on a doilied plate, while the pantry man back there with his stubby thumbs is saying, Damn these doilies. So that was the difference between the real world and what it looked like. My first day on the job, the pantry lady explained that she usually made a ham sandwich or something for the guy who was on the late shift. I said that I liked desserts so if there was a dessert left over from supper, I'd like that. The next night, I was on the late shift till 2 a.m., with these guys playing poker. I was sitting around with nothing to do, getting bored, when suddenly I remembered there was a dessert to eat. I went over to the icebox and opened it up, and there she'd left six desserts. There was a chocolate pudding, a piece of cake, some peach slices, some rice pudding, some jello. There was everything.' so I sat there and ate the six desserts. It was sensational. The next day she said to me, I left a dessert for you. Oh, it was wonderful, I said, absolutely wonderful. But I left you six desserts because I didn't know which one you liked the best. So from that time on she left six desserts. Every evening I had six desserts. They weren't always different, but there were always six desserts. One time when I was a desk clerk, A girl left a book by the telephone at the desk while she went to eat dinner, so I looked at it. It was the life of Leonardo, and I couldn't resist. The girl let me borrow it, and I read the whole thing. I slept in a little room in the back of the hotel, and there was some stew about turning out the lights when you leave your room, which I couldn't ever remember to do. Inspired by the Leonardo book, I made this gadget, which consisted of a system of strings and weights, Coke bottles full of water, that would operate when I'd open the door, lighting the pull-chain light inside. You open the door, and things would go, and light the light. Then you close the door behind you, and the light would go out. But my real accomplishment came later. I used to cut vegetables in the kitchen. String beans had to be cut into one-inch pieces. The way you were supposed to do it was, you hold two beans in one hand, the knife in the other, and you press the knife against the beans in your thumb, almost cutting yourself. It was a slow process, so I put my mind to it, and I got a pretty good idea. I sat down at the wooden table outside the kitchen, put a bowl in my lap, and stuck a very sharp knife into the table at a 45-degree angle away from me. Then I put a pile of the string beans on each side, and I'd pick out a bean, one in each hand, and bring it towards me with enough speed that it would slice, and the pieces would slide into the bowl that was in my lap. So I'm slicing beans, one after the other, jig, jig, Jake, 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 and everybody's giving me the beans, and I'm going like sixty. When the boss comes by and says, "What are you doing?" I say, "Look at the way I have of cutting beans." And just at that moment, I put a finger through instead of a bean. Blood came out and went on the beans, and there was a big excitement. Look how many beans you spoiled! What a stupid way to do things! And so on. So I was never able to make any improvement, which would have been easy with a guard or something. But no. There was no chance for improvement. I had another invention, which had a similar difficulty. We had to slice potatoes after they'd been cooked for some kind of potato salad. They were sticky and wet and difficult to handle. I thought of a whole lot of knives parallel in a rack coming down and slicing the whole thing. I thought about this a long time, and finally I got the idea of wires in a rack. So I went to the Five and Ten to buy some knives or wires and saw exactly the gadget I wanted— It was for slicing eggs. The next time the potatoes came out, I got my little egg slicer out and sliced all the potatoes in no time and sent them back to the chef. The chef was a German, a great big guy who was king of the kitchen, and he came storming out, blood vessels sticking out of his neck, livid red. What's the matter with the potatoes, he says? They are not sliced. They had them sliced, but they were all stuck together, he says, How can I separate them? Stick them in water, I suggest. In water? Yeah! Another time I had a really good idea. When I was desk clerk, I had to answer the telephone. When a call came in, something buzzed, and a flap came down on the switchboard so you could tell which line it was. Sometimes, when I was helping the women with the bridge tables or sitting on the front porch in the middle of the afternoon, when there were very few calls, I'd be some distance from the switchboard when suddenly it would go. I'd come running to catch it, but the way the desk was made, in order to get to the switchboard, you had to go quite a distance further down, then around in behind, then back up to see where the call was coming from. It took extra time. So I got a good idea. I tied threads to the flaps on the switchboard and strung them over the top of the desk and then down, and at the end of each thread I tied a little piece of paper. Then I put the telephone talking piece up on the top of the desk so I could reach it from the front. Now, when a call came, I could tell which flap was down by which piece of paper was up so I could answer the phone appropriately from the front to save time. Of course, I still had to go around back to switch it in, but at least I was answering it. I'd say, "'Just a moment,' and then go around to switch it in. I thought that was perfect, but the boss came by one day, and she wanted to answer the phone. And she couldn't figure it out, too complicated. What are all these papers doing? Why is the telephone on this side? Why don't you- I tried to explain. It was my own aunt, that there was no reason not to do that. But you can't say that to anybody who's smart, who runs a hotel. I learned there that innovation is a very difficult thing in the real world. Who stole the door? At MIT, the different fraternities all had smokers, where they tried to get the new freshmen to be their pledges. And the summer before I went to MIT, I was invited to a meeting in New York of Phi Beta Delta, a Jewish fraternity. In those days, if you were Jewish or brought up in a Jewish family, you didn't have a chance in any other fraternity. Nobody else would look at you. I wasn't particularly looking to be with other Jews and the guys from the Phi Beta Delta fraternity didn't care how Jewish I was. In fact, I didn't believe anything about that stuff and was certainly not in any way religious. Anyway, some guys from the fraternity asked me some questions and gave me a little bit of advice that I ought to take the first-year calculus exam so I wouldn't have to take the course, which turned out to be good advice. I liked the fellows who came down to New York from the fraternity, and the two guys who talked me into it I later became their roommate. There was another Jewish fraternity at MIT called SAM, and their idea was to give me a ride up to Boston, and I would stay with them. I accepted the ride and stayed upstairs in one of the rooms that first night. The next morning, I looked out the window and saw the two guys from the other fraternity that I met in New York, walking up the steps. Some guys from the Sigma Alpha Mu ran out to talk to them, and there was a big discussion. I yelled out the window, "'Hey, I'm supposed to be with those guys!' and I rushed out of the fraternity without realizing that they were all operating, competing for my pledge. I didn't have any feelings of gratitude for the ride or anything. The Phi Beta Delta fraternity had almost collapsed the year before because there were two different cliques that had split the fraternity in half. There was a group of socialite characters who liked to have dances and fool around in their cars afterwards, and so on, and there was a group of guys who did nothing but study and never went to the dances. Just before I came to the fraternity, they had had a big meeting and had made an important compromise. They were going to get together and help each other out. Everyone had to have a grade level of at least such and such. If they were sliding behind, the guys who studied all the time would teach them and help them do their work. On the other side, everybody had to go to every dance. If a guy didn't know how to get a date, the other guys would get him a date. If the guys didn't know how to dance, they'd teach him to dance." One group was teaching the other how to think, while the other guys were teaching them how to be social. That was just right for me, because I was not very good socially. I was so timid that when I had to take the mail out and walk past some seniors sitting on the steps with some girls, I was petrified. I didn't know how to walk past them, and it didn't help any when a girl would say, "'Oh, he's cute!' It was only a little while after that the sophomores brought their girlfriends and their girlfriends' friends over to teach us to dance." Much later, one of the guys taught me how to drive his car. They worked very hard to get us intellectual characters to socialize and be more relaxed, and vice versa. It was a good balancing out. I had some difficulty understanding what exactly it meant to be social. Soon after these social guys had taught me how to meet girls, I saw a nice waitress in a restaurant where I was eating by myself one day. With great effort, I finally got up enough nerve to ask her to be my date at the next fraternity dance and she said yes. Back at the fraternity, when we were talking about the dates for the next dance, I told the guys I didn't need a date this time. I had found one on my own. I was very proud of myself. When the upperclassmen found out my date was a waitress, they were horrified. They told me that was not possible. They would get me a proper date. They made me feel as though I had strayed, that I was amiss. They decided to take over the situation. They went to the restaurant, found the waitress, talked her out of it, And got me another girl. They were trying to educate their wayward son, so to speak, but they were wrong, I think. I was only a freshman then, and I didn't have enough confidence yet to stop them from breaking my date. When I became a pledge, they had various ways of hazing. One of the things they did was to take us blindfolded far out into the countryside in the dead of winter and leave us by a frozen lake about a hundred feet apart. We were in the middle of absolutely nowhere. No houses, no nothing, and we were supposed to find our way back to the fraternity. We were a little bit scared, because we were young, and we didn't say much, except for one guy whose name was Maurice Meyer. You couldn't stop him from joking around, making dumb puns, and having this happy-go-lucky attitude of, Ha-ha, there's nothing to worry about, isn't this fun? We were getting mad at Maurice. He was always walking a little bit behind and laughing at the whole situation, while the rest of us didn't know how we were ever going to get out of this. We came to an intersection not far from the lake. There were still no houses or anything, and the rest of us were discussing whether we should go this way or that way when Maurice caught up to us and said, "'Go this way.' "'What the hell do you know, Maurice?' we said, frustrated. "'You're always making these jokes. Why should we go this way?' "'Simple. Look at the telephone lines.' Where there's more wires, it's going toward the central station. This guy, who looked like he wasn't paying attention to anything, had come up with a terrific idea. We walked straight into town without making an error. On the following day, there was going to be a school-wide freshman versus sophomore mudio, various forms of wrestling and tug of wars that take place in the mud.